I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. A woman is found beaten in her garage. One day later, her best friend is shot. An awful coincidence or something more sinister happening in this neighborhood. This is the Becky Sears story. morning, Amy. Hi, Megan. I can see in your background some of your textbooks. Are you starting to prep uh, your fall classes? I should be. Thanks for reminding me of how much I'm not doing. (laughs) (laughs) Why, have you already prepped? You ready to go? So I'm teaching a new course. I think you might recall this semester. It's the first time I've actually taught a new course in a couple of years, and um, I was excited about it because I titled it Media and Violent Crime. Oh, I didn't know you're doing media and violent crime. I thought it was just media and crime. You know, I was going to do that. And then I decided I want to focus on violent crime specifically and how the media communicates that. Because I'm kind of looking at the way the media scares people more with violent crime. So interesting. And will you be talking about podcasts at all? Or are you talking more about like the news media? So that's a great question. Usually this course, like historically, it focused around television and films. But now with the advent of like true crime documentaries and podcasting and social media, I'm going to be covering it all, basically. And I'm, I, I think it's just our role in podcasting and things that we've talked about through this that maybe want to cover this or maybe want to develop this course. So I'm really excited about it. That's cool. I can't wait to hear how it goes. Thank you. I'm also thinking it's one of those longer classes. So I'm thinking about, you know, backing it up, like kind of lecture for first half and then maybe examining different forms of media the second half and analyzing it. 
Uh, let me know if you need a guest speaker. I could come talk about podcasting. <laughs> yes, I, of course I need a guest speaker. But the class takes place in the evening, so I'm not sure nope, if we could get never you there. Mind. Mm. All righty then, all right. Anyway, we know school is always hard to begin, but at least I'm feeling very inspired and excited about this new course. As for today's case, it's one that I learned about years ago, but sometimes these cases just pop back into my mind in the course of, as we've said, looking at other cases. And so a listener suggested a very similar case. And while I might cover that one as well, this one from years ago just popped in my mind and I started Googling it. So it is one of these cases where I think true life is absolutely stranger than fiction and it makes it even harder for us to explain, but, you know, we'll give it our best shot as always. But this is, as Abigail said when she was kind of reviewing the script, she said, Megan, this is absolutely bonkers. <laughs> okay. And I would have to agree. Somehow you always find them. I know. So, okay, without further ado, let's meet the subject of today's episode, Becky Sears. In 2009, Becky Sears was what many people might call your average outgoing suburban mother of five. Five. Ooh. Yes, five. Wow. I know. That's a lot, right? That's a lot, yep. Was there a large age range or were they all around the same age? There was an age range because while she lived with her husband, Tony, they lived in Grovetown, Georgia, which is kind of a mid-sized suburban all-American town not far outside of Augusta. They had children from two different relationships. So Becky had two children from a previous marriage and then three children from her marriage to Tony. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely an age range here. And by all accounts, they were a very happy family, though. Very close. Everyone got along. This town that they lived in had about 12,000 residents, many of whom were employed by the military as Fort Gordon was the base central to this town. And the town was very picturesque, lined with family-filled homes. Again, your total all-American kind of suburb or what we picture as that kind of suburb. Becky and her family also lived on, just to you know, further lend to this, their street was called Hot Springs Drive. <laughs> um, so again, sounds very picturesque. Mm -hmm. And right next to Becky's family lived the Parsons, Laverne Kay and David and their 12-year-old son, Derek. This family moved on to Hot Springs Drive in 2005. Kay, as she was called, this is Laverne Kay, but mm -hmm. she was known as Kay by family and friends, was described as the ultimate mother and devoted wife, all about her family. When the Parsons moved in, Kay and Becky, living next door, became quick friends. They worked at the same place of employment, Healing Hands Physical Therapy Center. They hung out together. They vacationed together. And one of Becky's children was also the same age as Kay's son, Derek, and the two played Little League together. So they were also friends. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they have the family connection, the working connection, the kids. Mm -hmm. They were basically two peas in a pod. And they were also lucky because their spouses got along really well, too. So it was like they had a couple to hang out with regularly in the neighborhood. Sounds perfect. It does. Life seemed really happy for these two families. And it seemed like they were truly living what we would call, you know, the American dream. But in 2009, a tragedy struck that would change life as everyone knew it. Kay left in the morning to take her son Derek to school, as usual, and then returned at 8.30 a.m. to meet with her contractor. However, when the contractor arrived at the Parsons' house, Amy, he saw that the back 
door window had been smashed. And so he pretty much knew that the house had been broken into. So the contractor came back around the front and he saw a young man sitting outside on a rock at the home across the street. So who is this young man? Well, it was Michael, one of Becky's sons. And he told the contractor that his home had also been broken into. And so the contractor called the police. Just so you know, the contractor had already rang the doorbell and called Kay's phone, but she didn't come to the door and she didn't answer the phone. So now you have Kay not responding, smashed window, Becky's son saying that their home had also been broken into. The police arrived shortly after the call was made to investigate both homes, but the first responders went into Kay's residence first. And what they found was shocking. There was blood all over the floor and furniture in a line that seemed to move through the house and into the foyer. There was also a bloody handprint on the door leading to the garage. And then in the garage, they found Kay Parsons lying on the floor in a pool of her own blood with severe head injuries. But surprisingly, Kay was still alive. So Kay was rushed to the hospital and they called her husband, David, who was in California on business at the time. But he immediately got on a plane to come home. While Kay lay in the hospital fighting for her life, investigators also entered the Sears home to check out the other break-in. Luckily for the Sears family, Becky had not met the same fate as her best friend. Because you see, Becky was alive and at work with her son Christopher that morning. But when they heard what happened to Kay, Becky rushed home. Remember, they were best friends. Mm -hmm. She was hysterical. And when she was told the details of what happened to Kay, and after making sure like her own family, everyone was safe in her home, Becky rushed to the hospital so that she could be there with other close friends and families to check on Kay. Now, were Kay's injuries life-threatening or is she conscious at this time? What's going on with Kay? Yeah, this is a good question. So while everyone is basically at the hospital praying, being there, you know, with Kay and just kind of hoping for the best, unfortunately, the prognosis was not good. Meanwhile, the police were concerned about what kind of perpetrator would break into a home beat a woman so severely, almost to her death, and then break into the home next door. This is very bizarre. I mean, this town was a quiet, family-friendly area, and crime was very low. So this was shocking, and this was a brazen offender. So understandably, Amy, the community was terrified. The police began questioning people right away and started with the first person that we're going to think of. Who do you think they started with? Well, it sounds like the husband was pretty far away, but they could still see if maybe he hired someone or if he had something to do with it. Is that right? Of course, that's correct. They always begin close to home. So they began by speaking with Kay's husband, David. He'd arrived at the hospital after catching the quickest flight out of L.A., but investigators wanted to know his full story. By all descriptions, David was extremely distraught in the interview, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but they still had a bad feeling about him. They said that something was off, but they didn't quite know what. It wasn't that they thought he was guilty of this crime. They just couldn't put their finger on what was you know, not quite right with David. Hmm. 
not usually a good sign, but I also think sometimes the police are too quick to suspect the husband or the spouse that they narrow in too quickly. So I'll be interested to hear if he actually had anything going on. It's a really good point. They do tend to hone in on a suspect. And then, of course, if that suspect becomes the focus, sometimes it derails the investigation in terms of looking through other avenues. But we'll get to more on David in a bit. Because while detectives were questioning David, they were also very carefully scrutinizing the crime scenes. Both homes had been ransacked and valuables taken. Becky, in particular, had valuable jewelry stolen. The police were also able to determine that Kay Parsons was beaten with a hammer and a bat. That sounds personal. It's brutal, and it might be personal. The bat they determined belonged to her son, Derek, which indicates that this was a weapon of opportunity, Mm -hmm. but not the hammer. The hammer did not belong to the family. We'll come back to that as well. The police checked out some local suspects, you know, the usuals with records of burglaries and some others who were reported as, quote, suspicious. But they really couldn't find any links between these individuals and these crimes. Meanwhile, as you had asked, sadly, it was deemed that Kay would not survive her injury. She was on life support at this point, Amy, um, with, you know, very little brain activity. So they determined that they were going to have to take her off of life support. That's so horrible. How old is she, Megan? Kay Parsons was 41 at this time. It's really sad. Very sad. I mean, it was devastating for everyone who knew her. People could not understand this type of crime. And this case went from a double burglary to a murder. But believe it or not, Amy, they quickly had a suspect in mind. I know this might seem like a silly question, Megan, but they were able to determine that The houses were broken into by the same person. Was it definitely only one person? Did they think maybe they were looking for a group of people? That's not a silly question. That's a great question. And they weren't sure at this point, but they did suspect it was the same perpetrator. Okay. And like I said, they had a suspect. Well, a suspect emerged. Let's put it that way. So at first, the police were very interested in the contractor. Mm -hmm. Remember, he seemingly showed up around the same exact time as this burglary and around the burglary of the other home. So the police brought him in for questioning, but they were able to verify that his schedule kind of matched his testimony. He did have a job, just so you know, at the home for the Parsons. So his presence was legitimate. They're always going to look into the person that enters the scene of a crime. But if you think about it, why would somebody who committed the crime be the one? I know sometimes they'll be the one to call the police to think maybe that takes the heat away from them, but it doesn't make much sense, I don't think, in most cases. Well, it also wouldn't make sense if you have a scheduled, documented appointment. <laughs> yes, that's that then, true. You know, perpetrate a crime yes. in that area because you're going to get caught very quickly, even for offenders that aren't totally bright. But fair point. Okay. The police were able pretty quickly to rule the contractor out, but there was also Becky's son, Michael. If you recall, he was sitting outside on the front lawn where that contractor discovered that Kay's house had been broken into. Now, when he was out there, did the contractor report that he had, did he look disheveled? Did he have any signs of injury or Anything on him? No, he did not. Okay. So let me discuss him. But no, that's a good question as well. Michael, who was age 22 at the time, said he arrived home early that morning around 8.30 a.m. to find that his home was broken into. Now, 
He didn't call the police. He called his mother, which some might say is a little bit odd. I'm sorry, Megan, how old is he? He was 22. Okay, so he's older. Okay. He's older. Additionally, Michael had a history that involved marijuana use and the use of methamphetamines, which, you know, didn't look great for him. In fact, the police asked him when the last time he had used methamphetamines was, and he said it had been that very morning. But he also explained that his mother dropped him off at a house for a painting job around 7 a.m. Okay, Megan, clearly there's a discrepancy here. If he was dropped off at 7 a.m., why is he home at 8.30? And how far is this location from the home? Um, so Michael apparently walked away from the house he was supposed to paint, according to him, and met up with a friend named Anthony so that they could use drugs together. And that was his story. And then after that, he walked home. You know, he, I guess, knew his mom, also Becky, was going to be at work for the day. So probably figured he could go home when the coast was clear. Yep. But this is not a great alibi. And the police were very interested in speaking to this person named Anthony to see if there was any confirmation. And Anthony did confirm that Michael had been with him that morning using methamphetamines. So it was established that Michael was not in the neighborhood during Kay's attack. But, you know, this wasn't the most reliable alibi as well. So, yes, he's remaining a suspect. Besides questioning him, the police also searched Michael. And while they found that his clothes were clean with no visible blood stains or any spatter, his shoes did have glass particles in them. And these were broken glass particles, which didn't look great because if you recall, both houses had windows smashed. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming they could see if the glass matches from the window, right? Yeah, of course they can. Mm -hmm. They're just collecting it for now. You know, this is the initial collection. The police also spoke to Becky's other older son, Chris, who worked with Becky and who lived in his own home. I think that they wanted to talk to Chris about Michael to see what he thought. And Chris seemed to have his life more together, but he also felt very strongly that his brother Michael would never harm anyone despite his trouble with drugs. I mean, this is just his opinion and he's family. So we can't say for sure that really has any credibility. But Michael was on police radar when, get this, Amy, another very shocking act of violence happened to someone very close to home. Just one day after her best friend was pulled off life support from this vicious attack, Becky Sears called 911 reporting that she had just been shot. What? Yes. Where was she? At home? No, she was leaving her place of employment. Remember that place where she and Kay both worked? Healing Hands? Yes. And she was reportedly shot in the leg as she was heading to her car that evening. Now, this makes me think that is... They're a disgruntled employee or a client who is after both of them because they work together, right? Yeah. It did work together, but I'm not giving anything away because this one is bonkers. Okay. Becky was not robbed or sexually assaulted, so it was also confusing, especially what had happened to Kay just 36 hours early. The police were perplexed. Was it the work of the same person or just this really bizarre coincidence Was it possibly a disgruntled employee or did it have something to do with their children? They got to work canvassing the neighborhood, but their search turned up very little. There was a shell casing on the scene, but that was about all. 
Becky was taken to the hospital, and luckily for her, this wound was not serious. It was more superficial than anything. I'm assuming she didn't see who shot her. Well, this is what she told the police, that her assailant had shouted at her that he wanted his money or next time it would be her face. However, she did not get a good look at him, and she said that she had no idea what this meant or what money he was talking about. But in the interview also, because they wanted to speak to Becky for a while, they're trying to figure out what about Becky makes her a victim. So they're getting more personal information on her. And during this interview, Becky admitted that she and her husband, Tony, had been going through a rough patch and that she had had an extramarital affair. She said the affair was over and it was insignificant and she and Tony were working things out. But this also leaves the police to wonder, in her case, are there other suspects? Mm -hmm. Or did Tony have a motive to shoot at Becky? Or was it possible that Michael owed drug debts and maybe that person was getting violent in order to collect? And that's what the money was referring to. Okay, a lot of possibilities here. So as much as, you know, Becky kind of glossed over this affair as being, you know, not significant, the police felt it was worth at least digging into a little bit and finding out if this was some disgruntled person with whom she had an extramarital affair. And when they were doing this, the police got a tip. And this tip came from Jerry Jacobs. Sounds like a name you made up. Did not make it up. It was, in fact, Becky's own brother. Oh, At the time of the investigation, Jerry was in the local jail for some misdemeanor charges, but he contacted the police and told him he thought he might have some idea who had killed Kay Parsons. That's pretty interesting. I'm dying to know what he say. Well, he revealed the person he thought had killed Kay Parsons was none other than his sister, Becky Sears. That's strange. Okay, well, he also told the police about an affair that Becky had. You see, it turned out that affair that Becky dismissed as insignificant was with Kay Parsons' husband, David. Uh, Okay, now we have a motive. The two had been having a sexual relationship for around six months prior to Kay's murder. Remember, they're best friends. Mm -hmm. Remember when I said police questioned David at the hospital and they felt like he was acting weird, but they just couldn't put a finger on it? Yep. Well, now we know why. But that wasn't all that Jerry divulged. He told investigators that while Becky wanted to stay in a relationship with David, he wasn't leaving Kay. And this devastated Becky. Jeez. So much so that she'd gone to her brother, Jerry, asking if he knew anyone who would kill Kay to get her out of the picture. Oh, he probably should have told authorities at that point. The police, well, the police were also shocked. Remember, one of their victims, was she also the perpetrator? Could this be true? Mm -hmm. Or was this just Jerry trying to get out of trouble? Does he have a family problem that he's looking to sort out this way? But Jerry said, by the way, and, and also police were wondering, was Michael involved in this? Did he help her? Wow. Now, here's another shocker. You ready? Jerry said it wasn't Michael who they should be worried about. It was Becky's oldest son, Christopher, that they should be looking at. (laughs) Okay. Yes. As investigators would later find out, Becky and Chris had a very odd relationship. They were almost too close with each other. Mm -hmm. So Chris would do essentially whatever Becky asked. And in return, she showered him with lavish gifts, including the house he lived in. So remember I said Christopher lived on his own? Well, he was just 19 years old at that time. And Amy, I don't know if you know many 19-year-olds that can afford their own home. 
Um, no, I don't think I know any, actually. So apparently Becky was had provided that home for Chris. And Jerry said that Chris was kind of Becky's confidant and had allegedly been the shoulder Becky had cried on when she found out David was not going to leave Kay. It turned out that Chris was really the only person who knew about this affair at all. Michael had no idea and neither had the other three children. So it was Becky and it was Chris. But what about David Parsons, Kay's husband? What was his role in this? And had he really told Becky he would stay with Kay? In his next interview, David came clean to the police about the affair and explained that while he had ended the relationship without Kay knowing, she found out after Becky confessed the affair to Tony. So Becky essentially let it be known that she had this affair and then Kay found out. Hmm. And there was also a ton of evidence of their relationship. They had letters exchanged between the two of them. So it wasn't just the word of someone. So Kay knew she had found out and she was devastated once she knew. But she loved her husband very much. And since the affair was already over, she and David decided to work things out. So Kay quit her job, Healing Hands, that one where she worked with Becky. And the two planned on moving away with their, their son, Derek, for a fresh start. However, David told the police something that didn't quite sit right. You see, the night before Kay's murder, he and Becky had a long phone conversation while he was in California for work. Mm -hmm. Remember, he was gone on work. I said he caught a plane. Mm -hmm. And the pair engaged in a lengthy phone sex encounter. So this was, you know, counter to the fact that he had sort of ended the affair. But he said the physical affair had ended and this was just a random phone call and who finally so it was him who told police about this phone call or her it was him okay while david continued to adamantly deny that he had anything to do with Kay's murder he had called becky on the morning of the murder asking if becky knew where Kay was and the police found this suspicious because he couldn't get in touch with Kay for you know a couple phone calls so he would call becky to see where Kay was mm-hmm They thought this was a little bit odd. There was no emergency going on. They didn't know of any reason why he should be super concerned. So they thought this didn't quite sit right either. But David said that he called every morning to like when he wasn't there to speak to his son. Like before his son went to school, Mm -hmm. he would call. And he said he was concerned when he couldn't get Kay or his son. So he said that he was calling Becky because Kay wasn't answering her phone. Or did David know more than he was saying? Unfortunately, the police didn't get much more helpful information from David. And for the time being, they really didn't have any evidence that he had any involvement in a crime. So he was allowed to leave. This didn't keep the neighborhood from turning on David, though. When word got out about David and Becky's affair, the whole community essentially turned on David, Mm -hmm. assuming that he killed his wife to get her out of the way to continue for this affair. You know, they were kind of a tight-knit community, too, and people were friends. I think they felt a sense of betrayal. Mm -hmm. But David maintained his innocence, as well as stating that he didn't think Becky could be involved either. He said he did not believe that she would be capable of something so violent. But one thing that struck detectives as interesting was that David was very aware that Becky had confided in her son, Chris, about this affair. Why would she do that? Well, as I said before, Becky and Chris had a bizarrely close relationship that seemed 
much more like friends than mother-son. I think he was her eldest, and I think she was kind of on the younger side too, although I don't know why or the extent of this relationship. That doesn't sound very healthy. No, it doesn't sound healthy. And the police brought the other brother, Michael, in for more questioning because now they were they were wondering, you know, was Michael involved or was Chris involved? And they asked about Becky's trait of lavish gift giving. And Michael explained that his mother was always very generous, but... He said that her gifts never were without strings, that there was always like a favor expected in exchange. So was it possible that Becky had asked Chris to harm or kill Kay in exchange for this house or some other type of gift? When police questioned Chris for the first time, the alibi that he'd given, get this, was that he was at work with his mother, Becky, that morning. That's interesting. Did Becky ever say that? Yes, it's turned out that Chris had another regular job, but he sometimes helped his mother at Healing Hands as well. It was, you know, just when they needed extra help. And so it just so happened that on the day of Kay's murder, Becky needed some extra help and asked Chris to go to Healing Hands with her. Is this a coincidence or is this something more? Hmm. The investigation of the murder scene also revealed that while the bat that killed Kay had been a weapon of convenience, there was also that hammer that did not belong to Kay. And according to Becky's brother, Jerry, remember the whistleblower in this case? Mm -hmm. That hammer belonged to Becky, who kept it in her garage. Okay, well, I think we have all the evidence we need, no? Well, we're getting a lot of bombshells, and the detectives knew that armed with this new information, they really wanted to speak to Chris again. Remember their first interview also kind of wasn't about Chris, but this one became more so. Mm-hmm. Chris was read his rights. He spoke very briefly with the police. And while he had hinted that he had information about his mother wanting Kay gone, he asked for a lawyer after 17 minutes of questioning. <laughs> and we don't know the exact content of what he said prior to that. Okay. But what happens next? Well, the detectives bring in Becky next. And surprisingly, she was willing to talk a lot. While she did not admit involvement in Kay's death, she said that she had wished Kay was gone. And get this, Amy. She said that she knew Chris wanted only to make her happy. So on the morning of Kay's murder, she picked Chris up, took him to her house with the understanding that something might happen to Kay. And she left him there. Okay, so she's... I can't can't believe she would put her own son up to this. Wow. Put him up to it and then essentially... Let the police know. Also, she's putting her son in danger. Of course. Yes, she is. She turned on Chris saying that he killed Kay, but she made it clear at this point that she never directed him to do this, that he did things to make her happy. But she admitted to picking him up even before and after the murder and helping him with his next steps to divert the investigation. (laughs) But then she dropped the next big reveal. Wow. Remember, Becky had gotten shot in the leg. (laughs) Well, Chris was the one who shot Becky. What? (laughs) Okay. Yes, her son shot her. He was supposed to have missed. (laughs) It was supposed to throw the police off? Yeah, of course. It was supposed to look like the same perpetrator was also after Becky. Oh, kind of like what I suggested. Maybe it was someone who was angry with them at work. Yes, or just anyone else. Um, Wow. But he missed and he shot her. So I guess he wasn't a really great shot. (laughs) Okay. But what would happen with this pair now? Oh, boy. 
Well, since mother turned on son, the two would have to have separate trials. And they were both charged uh, with the murder of Kay Parsons. They were both facing the death penalty too, Amy. Wow. The only thing they had in their corner, both of them, was that there wasn't any physical evidence tying Chris or Becky to the scene. So they didn't find any fingerprints, DNA, etc. I know there was a bloody handprint. I'm not sure what came of that handprint, or at least I just didn't see what came of that handprint. Going back to Michael, why did he have the, that glass in his shoe? Did he have something to do with this? No, they simply determined that he walked over to his house and discovered that his house had been broken into and he stepped in the glass. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. So before the trials were to commence, the state received a big piece of physical evidence against Chris. What did they get? Well, Becky threw her son under the bus a second time. In the hopes of getting herself a deal, Becky turned over Chris's bloody clothes and the missing jewelry that had been, quote, stolen that she'd hidden for Chris after he'd killed Kay. I cannot believe that she solicited her son's help and then just threw him under the bus like this. Completely. But her plan backfired, Amy, because the hidden clothes and stolen effects simply proved that she was a lot more involved than she'd originally portrayed. So it's time for our favorite game. Trials or plea deals. Remember, they're facing the death penalty. I mean, so. they're taking they're both going to do they're both going to. Jeez, I don't know. I'm going to say she's going to take a plea. And what about him? Mm, is he going to take a? Yeah. You know what? I'll say they they're both going to take a plea. Yeah. Okay. They both made deals. Okay. You got that right. And they both got life in prison. It turned out Becky did not wind up doing any better off than her son, who she betrayed in the end. Becky's husband divorced her. And David Parsons was cleared of any involvement in the crime. David went on eventually to get remarried living in the house where he and Kay had resided during that tragedy or before the tragedy. But it wasn't the end of the story exactly. Remember how Becky was always providing these lavish gifts? Yes. Well, how did she afford that? As it turns out, an audit by her previous employer at Healing Hands revealed that Becky had stolen approximately $250,000 from the business. I'm not surprised. This woman is no good. And how did she um, hide this? Well, she hid some of her um, theft of the business by blaming her other son, Michael, the drug user, for stealing from them after he had done a painting job at the business. Wow. Michael had clearly never taken his money. And after this revelation, just so you know, Healing Hands didn't file charges since Becky was already serving life for the murder. Yeah, but you would think they would want restitution. I would have thought so as well. Perhaps they knew there wasn't going to be any and it would cost them more. I'm not really sure. Now, what about Kay's husband? He, I'm assuming he didn't know that Becky was capable of this and he knew nothing. No, he did okay. not. Like I said, he was cleared of all okay. involvement, meaning he had no knowledge, no involvement, well, did not participate whatsoever, just has to live with I the I was going to say, he has to live with the fact that this happened. Yeah. yeah. So in the end, like I said, Becky and Chris, they will be in prison for life. But why this awful tragedy? Why did this have to even happen? Well, this was a case of jealousy, desire and entitlement, really. I mean, if you think about it, Becky Sears wanted David for herself, even though she likely had a deluded idea of what a life with him would really be like. She couldn't see beyond that. She couldn't see beyond David staying with Kay, she wanted him at all costs. 
And I have to say, I think Becky seemed to be a woman who got exactly what she wanted. So let me go with this. Becky stole. She lied. She manipulated others on a regular basis, disregarded the feelings of others, blamed other mis- blamed others for her mistakes, had superficial relationships, had a history of promiscuity. And so what I'm getting at here is with all of these traits that she had, I think it's very clear she had many signs of an antisocial personality. Would you agree here, Amy? Uh, yeah, I think you pretty much covered it. There's a laundry list here. Um, I didn't see that coming, I have to say, though. Which part? When you first told me about the murder, I think the last person I would have suspected at that point was Becky. Understood. But in the end, it was her. And she was a versatile uh, offender and she blamed others. But, you know, also she she blamed Chris. But how do we explain? Uh, so Becky's behavior is, is, well, you don't, it's, you know, unfathomable. I can, we can explain it, right? She wanted this. She was an antisocial person. She didn't mind using people to do her dirty work. How do you think we would explain Chris's behavior? Um, I just think that he was under the control of his mother. And it's one of these situations where he wanted to do anything he could do to please her. Yeah, I think so, too. It doesn't make him less culpable, but I think he was almost groomed in a way mm-hmm. to please his mother. So I, I don't think that Chris felt he could say no to his mother in many ways. I think she controlled him in many ways. And he felt this this need, this persistent need to please his mother, unfortunately. Chris once told his brother, Michael, that he would do anything for their mother. Mm. And I guess in the end, that's just what he did. Now, whether or not the system got this one right, this one's an easy one for me for this case. It was Becky and Chris who conspired to murder Kay and carry out this crime. Becky used both of her children to get what she wanted. And in the end, she had no problem blaming Chris and trying Mm -hmm. to save herself. I guess it's no surprise that she would use her own child as a scapegoat, but it certainly created a horrible tragedy for the family of Kay Parsons. And I'd also say it's a real tragedy for Chris, who thought he was pleasing his mother, and for the rest of her family. You know, we have to recognize that the acts of this individual and these two individuals had a ripple effect that victimized so many others. And it was just such a tragedy in the end and a shocking crime. I mean, I would agree. It really destroyed two families and, you know, the children of both families that had to deal with the loss of their mothers, both of them. I know. I sincerely hope that they are able to find ways to get through these tragedies in their own lives. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that case. I'd never heard of it before. And it's, it is really It's a shocking one. It is one. I think we would agree that in the beginning, I said sometimes true life is just stranger than fiction. Okay. Thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. And we'll see you next time on Women and Crime. Women and Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime.
sources for today's episode include ABC News, a Dateline episode, multiple articles from the Augusta Chronicle. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.